this week we get to the story of blind Bartimaeus and his companion, fairly well-known story. Let's just read the verses that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Then Mark 10, 46-52. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he had heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept, uh, he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And then Luke eighteen thirty-five to 43 As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Well, we get to the setting as we usually do. And we get that in just the first couple of verses of this passage, Matthew 20, 29-30. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men were sitting by the road. In Mark 10:46, then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And Luke 18:35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now there are two issues you can see as you look at these. Uh, different texts in particular. One is the difference regarding where Jesus was in relation to Jericho, and the other is the number of blind men. Let's go to Jericho first. Now, Jericho, of course, is most famous from the days of Joshua. And Matthew and Mark, you'll see, have Jesus leaving Jericho. He came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho, whereas uh, Luke says he's approaching Jericho. And immediately after the story in Luke, we'll see Jesus entering Jericho and meeting Zacchaeus. So that's there's a difference there. Is Jesus entering Jericho or leaving Jericho? Now, let me show this this map of where Jericho is in relation to Jerusalem. We have the Dead Sea here, and um, Jesus has been over in Perea on the east side of the Jordan. He's crossed over Jericho. Here's here's Jericho. You see a Jericho Old Testament. This is where Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. 
And this is Jericho in the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then we have this road up here to Jerusalem. So Jericho itself is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And if you remember the geography here, the Dead Sea is the lowest point on the earth, uh, on the surface of the earth. And, and Jerusalem is at 2,500 feet above sea level. So you have about 800 feet below sea level up this uh, this road to Jerusalem, so it's, it's a quite a steep climb of, of, of about 3,000 feet or more. And it's the last spot to stay on the way to Jerusalem. It's a six-hour ascent. There's not really anything between here and there. I was happened to be there about this time last year, and there, there's no towns or anything from here to, to the outskirts of Jerusalem. We saw a bunch of farmer, uh, shepherds and that sort of thing, but really not, no, no settlements. It's pretty pretty much a wilderness out here. In fact, this is probably where Jesus, in this area was where Jesus was when he spent his time in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Now, when we get to the, how do we explain the differences? Is Jesus entering Jericho or is he leaving Jericho? Uh, some think that there were two healings. So one as Jesus came into Jericho and then the one as he left. But when you look at the details of these healings, they're the same. And it seems strange that while Jesus may have healed multiple blind men in Jericho, uh, in different occasions, the fact is that the stories themselves are so similar, I think that they've got to be the same occasion. Some would notice, in fact, I think most would, would note that there are two Jerichos. We have the old Jericho, uh, the Old Testament Jericho, and then the New Testament Jericho. Uh, this was just about a mile away, and this is one where Herod the Great had built a new city with a great winter palace. And In fact, Herod died in Jericho. And so in this view... They were leaving Old Testament Jericho, which was basically ruinous, and entering the, the new city of Jericho. And so that's how it, that's explained. Now, one commentator had this idea, at least one, and I, here I've created a very scientific, deeply researched, and archaeologically correct map, the diagram of what Old Testament or New Testament Jericho may look like. Here's the eastern gate, here's the southern gate, here's Zacchaeus' house. This is not to scale or anything. But the idea here is that Jesus came in the eastern gate, uh, and he's walking ahead of the crowd, and it wasn't until the crowd came by and Jesus was already into the city that the blind men were aware of Jesus being in Jericho, at which point they went to the southern gate outside the city. They kind of wanted to beat Jesus here to this gate, and they're going to wait for him to heal them. And according to this view, the meeting with Zacchaeus took place in between this time. So they come from the eastern gate, um, spend some time in the city, go to Zacchaeus' house. The next day, perhaps, or sometime later, they come to the southern gate where the blind men are waiting for them. And so in this in this case, the story of Zacchaeus happens in the midst of this other story about healing a blind man, but Luke just puts it afterwards for narrative purposes. But that's certainly possible, I suppose, but... Um, Calvin suggests something kind of like this idea and adds that maybe Jesus intentionally didn't respond right away to, to test the faith of the men. So maybe the men are, have uh, seen Jesus, they've heard about Jesus here as Jesus is entering Jericho, but by the time he actually responds to them, they're leaving Jericho. The thing is, though, they're, they're still sitting by the road when Jesus encounters them. So that has its own problems. The fact is we just don't know. There are multiple Explanations, some more plausible than others, but we can't say for sure. Um, in any case, let's move on to the next uh, question about this 
story, besides the issue of entering or leaving Jericho, what about the number of blind men? You see here, Matthew mentions two men, and Mark and Luke only mention one. And this is pretty easily explained. We've seen this earlier in the story about the, the Gerasene demoniac. Matthew mentions two demoniacs, and Mark and Luke mention just one. And this may be that one of the men was more vocal in speaking to Jesus. You know, we have a leader and a follower situation. Um, or in, perhaps in Mark's case, where he names Bartimaeus, it may be that Bartimaeus himself was known by some of the readers of Mark. And so Mark is bringing this up because it has, they have some personal interest in the, in the man Bartimaeus. But again, there's no great difficulty here because Mark and Luke don't say there was one and only one man healed by Jesus. There, there could have been more than one healed. They only mentioned the one. <clears throat> one other thing to note is that, as far as we know, Matthew was the only one there for this miracle, and so he may have had both of these men vividly in his mind at the time he wrote. Now, a few other differences. First of all, as I mentioned, only Mark mentions the name of this blind man, Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus is translated for us. It means son of Timaeus, not very helpful, but the name Bartimaeus is Aramaic, and the prefix bar means son of, so son of Timaeus. And Mark may translate this for his readers because his readers are more Gentile, less familiar with the uh, the rules of the Aramaic language, and so he translates it for them. For example, even earlier, in fact, there are several times that Mark translates Aramaic for his readers. Uh, back in Mark 3, he mentions James and John, and it says to them, Jesus gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And so Mark likes to mention the Aramaic word, but he'll translate it for his readers. Also, another interesting thing, I'm not sure it means anything, but Matthew doesn't mention that the blind men were begging, just that they were sitting by the road, but you could ask yourself, what else would they be doing sitting by the road? They're not just there catching their breath, probably they're there to beg. When you think about how common blindness must have been until very recent times, I mean, a lot of us have glasses. Every morning I get to put in two pieces of plastic in my eyes and I have perfect vision. Without that, I wouldn't be able to, to drive and do a lot of things. But through many great blessings of technology today, we can have these abilities to, to see better. But think about, in ancient times, how many infections, injuries, and, and war or other things, just accidents, vitamin deficiencies is still a problem in many parts of the world today, causing blindness. They had no corrective lenses, they had very primitive surgery, and little understanding of infection. They, they did have some some balms and that sort of thing, which would help somewhat, but really, curing eye problems was a something that was very uh, hard to do back in those days. And uh, beyond that, today, there are many opportunities for the blind, especially with technology. So even if the blind can't be healed or helped much by modern eye medicine, they can still uh, make a living, they can still uh, function more in society. But in Jesus' time, there wasn't much a blind person could do except beg, unless they had a family who could support them. So this was something that, that the blind and other lame people would just have to do because there was no other way for them to to live, to survive. To, to, they needed to rely on the help of other people. And being on a roadside in Jericho, a very important, busy city, around Passover time when there's lots of people passing through, is a great place to beg. Now, there's one point that they all make, is that there's a crowd. In fact, uh, in Luke, though, they have a, a crowd, a, they hear a crowd going by. 
And Jesus, as we've said in past weeks, is on his way to Jerusalem for Passover and is likely in a large group uh, traveling there together. In fact, it may just be a couple of days before Passion Week. For Matthew and Mark, right after the story we have today, Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the, the, the triumphal entry on that Sunday before he is crucified. So this may be just a matter of a couple of days uh, before he is in Jerusalem that Passion Week. Now we get next to the blind men's cries. The blind men's cries. Matthew 20, verses 30 and 31. Then two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. In Mark 10, 47 and 48. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. In Luke 18, 36-39, a little more detail. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So in Luke, we have the men who hear the crowd and ask what all this fuss is about. And you can imagine when they hear how excited they were. Somehow, these men knew Jesus was the son of David and that he could heal them. And there are many references in the Gospels to Jesus healing blind people. Generally, uh, in Matthew fifteen thirty, this is when he's north in Galilee by the, by the sea, large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. And then a few, or really a couple specific cases, I won't go into all of them, but in Matthew 9, we have Jesus again meeting two blind men, and he touches their eyes and tells them not to spread the news about their healing, but they did so anyway. And so it says in Matthew 9.31, they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. And again, that's the north in Galilee, but Jesus was famous uh, in many places for his healing of blind men. In Jerusalem, John 9, Jesus meets the man born blind. And he, remember, he made clay and applied it to his eyes and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And so that's more in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, of Jericho, rather. And so wherever Jesus goes, he's healing people, and especially he's healing blind men. Uh, that would be of interest to these men. They know of Jesus, they know he's the son of David, and they know he can heal them. In fact, healing the blind, you might remember, was a sign of his messiahship. Uh, Luke 7, 20 to 22, we have some disciples of John who go to see Jesus. Remember, John's in prison at the time. And they say, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered to that and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Now he's quoting the Old Testament. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. So this was part of Jesus' job as the Messiah. It was part of the prophecies that he would come and heal the blind. Now, there's no other record in the Gospels of Jesus ever going to Jericho, but it's likely he'd been there many times before on his travels between Galilee and Jerusalem. And certainly, his reputation as a healer was known to everyone in that area. But I expect that these men had 
never before encountered Jesus personally. Why? Because he would have been healed already, right? So for some reason, these men had never met Jesus. Or maybe they'd lost their sight after they had, Jesus had last come to Jerusalem. We don't know. But this may be their one chance. And so they're going to make sure Jesus hears and responds to them, even when the crowd tells them to be quiet. Now, why do they say this? It seems kind of callous. Maybe they think Jesus is too important to bother with these blind beggars, or they don't like hearing all this Son of David talk. Maybe it's a little too revolutionary for them. Or maybe they're just bothered by the noise. Remember earlier in Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, and the disciples begins to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. Sound familiar? Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But Jesus did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. The disciples were, were tired of the noise, this woman shouting at them, Lord, either send her away or heal her daughter, do something, just get her to be quiet, please. So that may be why. They just don't like all the shouting. It's already crowded and noisy enough. Let's not have these blind men shouting at Jesus. Now Mark mentions that Jesus is called Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus is a common name in those days. It's the same name as Joshua, interestingly, in Jericho. But Mark calls him Jesus the Nazarene, and Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth in Luke, and it's the same thing. It means that Jesus is from the city of Nazareth, or really the village. But more important than his hometown is his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. They call him here the son of David. And Jesus is called the son of David a few other times in the Gospels, especially in Matthew. Even right out of the gate, Matthew 1.1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, that is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Back in Matthew 9, after Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, Jesus went on from there, and two blind men, we saw them earlier, followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And then later in Matthew 12, Jesus casts a demon from a blind and a mute man. And it says, the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And then we see the the Pharisees commit the unpardonable sin, ascribing Jesus' powers to Satan. Matthew 15.22, we just saw the Canaanite woman saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And then shortly after this, in Matthew 21, verse 9, it says, The crowds going ahead of him, that is, in the triumphal entry, those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. And Matthew is the only one who mentions this title of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. So Matthew especially refers to Jesus often as the Son of David. What does this term, Son of David, mean? Well, let's let the Pharisees tell us. They know what it means. Turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 41. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. So the Pharisees say, The Christ is the son of David. And Jesus asked them this question. He said to them, Then how does David and the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the answer for us, we know, is because Jesus is the son of David biologically, but he's the Lord of David in his deity. 
But the Pharisees knew that the son of David, this title, was referring to the Christ, the Messiah to come. And where did the Pharisees and others get this idea? We can go way back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, we have this important promise from the Lord to David. 2 Samuel 7, starting verse 12. And here, God is speaking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And now this is, has a, a near and far aspect to it. He's speaking immediately of, of Solomon, but also there's a, a, a further son he's talking about. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it from away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now Solomon had died, and his throne had gone away uh, for many years at this point, but the Jews knew there was a future promise of the son of David sitting on the throne reigning. Psalm 89. It's Psalm 89. Verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then a couple of passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 9 talking about the Messiahship of the son of David. This, this chosen one, this anointed one. Remember Messiah, Christ anointed one referring to uh, his kingship, among other things. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then over to Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Remember that idea of the stem of Jesse or the root. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of the Lord, uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then verse 10. In that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And so we have all these Old Testament passages and more talking about the son of David sitting on the throne, this Messiah, this Christ anointed one. And this term is used elsewhere in the New Testament, but let's just point out one at the very end of the scriptures, almost the closing words of the word of God, Revelation 22, verse 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches, I am the root, remember the root before the root of Jesse, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So fundamental to Jesus' messiahship, his lordship, is the fact that he was born of the seed of David. Now back to our passages for today. Even though Matthew has the most uses of this term, son of David, all three writers in this passage have the men saying it at least twice. They say... Have mercy, son of David. Have mercy, son of David. 
And they have a request of this son of David. They say, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And again, we've seen this before. The blind man in Matthew 9, have mercy on us, son of David. The Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is demon-possessed. Later, Matthew 17, 15, we have the, the man that Jesus meets coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And then the ten lepers in Luke 17 say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so these are all desperate people who have no help but Christ. There's no medical solution to their problems. And they're so desperate that when they're told to be quiet, these blind men call out all the more. They will not be quieted. They want so badly to be healed, and they know only Jesus can do that for them. This may be their last chance. Well, we get then to Jesus' question, the Savior's question. Matthew 20, verse 32. And Jesus stopped and called him and said, What do you want me to do for you? And in Mark 10, 49-51, And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And Luke 18, 40-41, Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, we see in all this hustle and bustle, Jesus, with his mind set to Jerusalem and the cross, he stopped. While he had a lot going on, a lot to think about, a lot to pray about, he had much to accomplish in Jerusalem, he wasn't too busy to help these needy men. He just said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so he wants to serve these men. Now, Mark, I, I love this part of Mark because he has some interesting parts in his story. And again, we have this sort of action-oriented Mark in description. Um, Jesus asks someone to call the blind man and the people telling him to have courage and stand up and that Jesus was calling for him. Those are all unique to Mark. And then we have in Mark this man, Bartimaeus, throwing aside his cloak and jumping up. So he may be blind, but his, his ears, his mouth, his legs work just fine. Now remember, in those days, people would have uh, sort of an outer cloak, and they would have their, when they needed to hurry, they would take their outer garments and tuck them into the belt, but that took some time to to gird their loins, as as we say. Or maybe the cloak was spread in front of him as he was collecting alms for like a little basket. He'd lay his cloak, and people would toss alms into his cloak. In either case, he wanted nothing to delay or hinder him from getting to Jesus. He he threw any, any encumbrance aside so he could get directly to Christ. And then they ask, what do you want me to do? Or Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, if you remember, Jesus has asked the same question not too long before. And and Mark, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Remember that? Basically the same words. And the previous case, remember James and John said, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. So they want exaltation. That's what they want Jesus to do for them. <clears throat> but now we, he gets a much different answer. Now Jesus' question may seem obvious. If you met a blind person and they ask you to, for, for something and, and you were a well-known healer, you might think, well, they want to be healed, of course. <clears throat> what else would they want? But up to this point, the men have only asked for mercy. They haven't asked for healing yet. And these men beg others for mercy day after day. 
And Jesus could show mercy in many ways by giving them money or by praying for them, maybe laying his hands on them and blessing them, doing any other sort of kindness short of a miracle. And so by asking this question, maybe Jesus wants to draw out how much faith they have. How much do you think I can do for you? Do you really believe that I can heal you? Well, we get finally to the blind man's request. They say in Matthew twenty thirty three, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. In Mark ten fifty one, the blind man says to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Luke eighteen forty one says much the same thing, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Now Mark here has this man saying, Rabboni, it's Aramaic for my master. It's related to the word for rabbi, the intensified form of rabbi. Others, the other Gospels use the term Lord, Kreos. And I think it's best understood not as them understanding Jesus as the God-man, like we would say, the Lord Jesus Christ, referring to him as Lord Yahweh. I don't think they had that concept of who Jesus was. But they just see Jesus as someone they owe deep respect to as the son of David and the great miracle worker. And they say, I want to regain my sight. And the idea, I think, is that they had been able to see before and somehow had lost their sight. They want to be able to see again. Well, after this request, we have the Savior's compassion. The Savior's compassion, Matthew twenty thirty four says, Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. In Mark ten fifty two, Jesus says to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And then Luke eighteen forty two and forty three, Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God, and when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Now all three gospels say that the men were healed immediately and followed Jesus, and they probably accompanied Jesus on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now that they're they're able to see, they can accompany this crowd up to Jerusalem and perhaps give a sacrifice, thanking God for the gift of sight. But the Gospels here also nicely supplement each other. They're not all cookie cutters. Matthew, for example, says Jesus was moved with compassion and touched their eyes, but he doesn't say that Jesus spoke to them again. And this compassion of Jesus is common in the Gospels, of course, in Matthew 9 says that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then in Matthew 14, 14, says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. And then, before the feeding of the 4,000, Matthew 15, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for these people because they have remained with, me, remained with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. So Jesus has compassion for physical needs of, of food, compassion for needs of healing, but also spiritual needs. He has compassion for these people who are like a sheep without a shepherd. And so in, in every way, Jesus felt compassion for these crowds, for those who needed his touch, whatever it was. And Mark and Luke both mention the part of the men's faith in their healing where Matthew doesn't. In fact, it says here, your faith has made you well, but literally this says, your faith has saved you. 
then the salvation could mean in a, a temporal sense, a healing sense, or in a, 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 a permanent sense in terms of spiritual salvation. And Jesus has used this term multiple times when he heals people. Remember the woman with the flow of blood? Luke 8 says, Jesus says to this woman, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Or your faith has saved you again. And then the ten lepers. The Samaritan comes back. Luke 17. And Jesus says to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you, has made you well. I think that the clearest example of this being used, though, in a, a salvific sense is Luke 7. Let's turn there. Luke 7. 37. Luke seven thirty seven. It says, There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. If we go down to verse 47, Jesus is speaking to the, the Pharisee. For this reason I say to you, her sins, this woman's sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who was forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus says to the woman, verse 50, your faith has saved you, same phrase is used in our passage for today. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman didn't have a physical need. She had a spiritual need. And her love for Christ, her repentance over her sins, this this sort of faith that came to Christ saved her. Jesus says so here. And so it's certainly possible, I think, that the blind man's faith didn't result in just physical sight, and a kind of temporal salvation, but spiritual sight and eternal salvation. Now, one supplement that Luke adds here is that he mentions the men glorifying God, these blind men glorify God, and then the crowd also gives praise to God. And there's a special emphasis in Luke on praising and glorifying God after miracles and other amazing events. And Luke does so more than other Gospels. So we have Zacharias, Luke 1, uh, remember, he is made mute because of his lack of faith. But it says later, at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Remember the shepherds, Luke 2. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. There's also the story that's in other Gospels of the man who's let down through the ceiling. He's a paralytic. His friends let him down through the ceiling. But only Luke says this. Immediate Luke 5, immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. And then in Luke 7, Jesus raises the young man who has died in, in name. It says, fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And then Luke 13, Jesus encounters a woman who's bent double by unclean spirit in a synagogue. It says, he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. 
And then a few verses later, the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So the woman who is healed and the, the people who see this healing are glorifying God. And we saw before the Samaritan leper, Luke 17, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And then one last example here. At the triumphal entry, uh, again, this is only in Luke. Luke 19, 37 says, As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, he was coming down the Mount of Olives and going into Jerusalem, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. So Luke especially shows how much the people uh, were grateful to God, grateful to Jesus for the, the healing of these men and to be able to witness such a thing. And what else could you do when seeing such an amazing miracle? And thus, of course, you're a Pharisee, in which case you want to kill Jesus. But that's the normal human reaction to see this, this misery brought to great joy, is to praise God. Well, do you have any questions or comments before we wrap things up? Anybody want to see my diagram again of New Testament Jericho? It's copyrighted. You can't use it. Well, let's close with a few points as we wrap up. We see Jesus in Jericho at this time, and it's easy to see them as 2,000 years away, very far away. But we follow the same powerful and compassionate Christ today, don't we? He is able and willing, even eager, to hear our petitions and help his people. But we need to ask ourselves, when we are asking Christ to, to, to have mercy on us, are we asking him truly in faith? Hebrews four fifteen and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. That has the idea of faith as well, right? With confidence we come to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, Lord, have mercy on me. We have confidence. We draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. But we might say, these men asked Jesus a couple of times in a short period of time to have mercy on them, and Jesus answered them right away. But we often pray time after time after time. We, we pray for healing. We pray for a change in our circumstances for whatever reason. Or even more urgently, we pray for the salvation of a loved one. Lord, open their blind eyes. May they see the glory of Christ. And it can be discouraging. It can be uh, hard after a long period of time to just keep asking and asking and asking and not feeling like we have any response. So we ask ourselves, then, are we, are we persisting as we ask? Even going back to the beginning of this chapter, Luke 18, Jesus tells them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And then even earlier in Luke 11, parable of the persistent friend, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks will be opened. But again, that's the idea of persistent asking. So we ask ourselves, are we persisting? Are, are we giving up? Are we getting weak in our faith? Another lesson for us as we see Jesus' compassion on these people is 
to have compassion ourselves for the needy, even as Christ did. Now, we may not be able to heal as Jesus did. Or, or we can try, though, to help in our own small way. First John 3.17 says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? No, it's, it can be hard sometimes to see people we think maybe aren't the deserving poor, people who may have got into a situation by their own wrongdoing for whatever reason, and to, in a sense, close our heart to those people. But by God's grace, we want to still have compassion on them. They are still eternal beings created in God's image. And as much as it might be distorted on the surface, we want to show the love of Christ to these people, as hard as it might be. And finally, as we look at what Luke tells us, we need to praise God for his goodness. And when we see it in our own lives and in others' lives, to praise God, thank him for it. Thank him for it immediately. Remember the the ten lepers that Jesus healed, and only one came back to thank and glorify God. And he was a Samaritan. All these nine Jewish lepers went away and didn't thank God, didn't thank Jesus. And we can be too much like those nine lepers, can't we? Is we pray and pray and pray, and God gives us what we ask for, and then we just go on or don't even notice it. That's a, a grief that we would ask and ask and ask and not say thanks. How often do we rebuke our kids? Did you say thank you? Did you write thank you letters to your grandma for the, the Christmas gift you didn't really like very much? Well, that's how we often are ourselves, even as adults. Our attitude toward the goodness of God is to just let it wash over us and move on to the next thing, to the next request. But let's be those who continually praise God for his goodness to us and also praise God for the goodness we see in the lives of others. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this lesson from Christ, so many lessons truly from Christ. As we see his power and majesty, we don't have any sort of power like that to heal, but we can have compassion, even as Jesus did. Help us to be compassionate ourselves to those that who need mercy from us. May we also, as we see Jesus' power, be persistent in our prayers. We know that you are a good God who loves his people. You are a powerful God who can change things for his people. May we not grow slack in our prayers, but keep coming to the throne of grace with confidence and asking for this mercy and grace to help in time of need. May you get all the praise for it. May we also not be slack in our praise, our thanks for you, even in small mercies, small and large. May we come to you thanking you again and again for all your goodness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.